Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design for RMIT University. And I'm here with one of Australia's leading architects, William Smart from Smart Design Studio. Now, William has had so much press recently and everyone would have heard of him, but welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, William, I'm just trying to think, I, I have a, quite a long memory and tell me if I'm wrong, but I think I interviewed you many years ago when your first kitchen was a bright red wall. Yeah. And it was obviously by phone, it was written newspaper, but you had a real worldliness about you and a maturity that I actually thought you were a lot older. This is going back at least 25 years, I think. Yeah, that would, not, not quite, but that would have been 2002. And, so nearly um, 20 years ago. Yeah, and since, I mean, I sort of left home young, so I left home at 17 to go to university and looked after myself and paid my way through university and did all that from a young age and then did a lot of travelling. So I did five years of travelling before coming back to Sydney. Well, I say back, I had never lived here before, but coming to Sydney and back to Australia to kind of explore new things, have a bit of fun. So you've, you've really had quite a meteor, meteoric rise very quickly, uh, even though you have, as I recall, you know, you've been producing great work for a number of years and that kitchen was only, you know, a very small start, but it was quite different from, it was only one better in Paddington from, in Surrey Hills, I think it was. Was that right? It's King, King's Cross. In King's in Cross, Cross. Well, getting yeah. there. And it was very small, but you did this bright red wall that basically covered everything. Mm, it, was a, it was one of the, I was sort of dying to do a concept and the concept for the, the project was a Swiss Army pocket knife, which is That's part right. of the reason why it was red. And in that pocket knife, you had everything that you needed to live. So it had a telly. And back in 2002, this was sort of when you had those rear projection TVs that were, you know, five, 600 mils deep. So it was on a big arm and weighed 40 yeah. kilos and you'd swing it out. But inside there also we had storage, uh, a sound system, um, an oven, a fridge, everything behind doors. So you just didn't see anything. And it kind of gave all the utility that this, small, quite beautiful King's Cross apartment needed. And we thought it was nice because it was, you know, the red light district and it was red and it was kind of glossy and shiny and, and it was um, kind of a, an idea to see if I could try and do concepts within residential interiors and follow that through and then also just a kind of opportunity to do something a little bit bolder. And I think it was sort of in the time when, Everybody wanted white poly and Caesar stone bench tops and, you know, getting away from that was extremely hard. It yeah. just felt like the solution was almost given to you. You had to work with these materials and these palettes and that was the way it worked. So this became an opportunity to just move entirely away from that. So, so William, you, you must have established your practice at probably about 20 years ago then. Yeah, ex exactly. So I started in 97 so oh, okay. I was working at Hassel at the time and I was working on the Olympic Park railway station. I worked on that for two years and then at the end of it, I hadn't planned it, but I just started getting this inkling I wanted to do my own thing. And so um, I bought a computer, I started setting things up and getting ready for that. And one time in 2000, no, sorry, in 1998, I had one month where two private projects came my way. So someone said, 
would you do my apartment renovation? And another person said a few weeks later, would you do my terrace alterations and additions? And both were done on you know, tiny, tiny budgets. And I just thought I might just do this. That would keep me busy for three months and I'll work the rest out as I go. And so I'd gone from working on big projects at Foster and Partners and this railway station at Olympic Park to doing a tiny apartment renovation for $50,000 and a terrace renovation for about $100,000. I mean, you're working on such vast scales now. I mean, people who would have seen your well-published uh, home and studio, I think it was featured in Bell magazine recently, and it won a major award, uh, the named award, a sustainable award, uh, quite a breathtaking piece of work. And maybe we'll go from the small kitchen with the Swiss army knife to this extraordinary building in um, uh, in Alexandria. Mm. So tell me a little bit about how that project started because it is fascinating. I think it kind of it shows you not only how you can work from home but how you can transform something pretty banal into something quite uh, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah it was... A, it was um, we... Uh, had built a building in, in Surrey Hills, and that was our home for about 15 years before that. And our company had grown to about 40 people, and we had filled that building, and we had some people in the stables at the back, and some people upstairs and downstairs. And the basement was our library, and it was just we were working around the building. And so we thought, let's go and find ourselves one big flat space, and it needed to be partially a renovation so we could afford to do it but let's go and find ourselves a big flat space and build an office for forever and make that our forever home. And so we landed on this little patch in Alexandria where you have to keep the old warehouses that are there. It's a conservation area and the council asks you to keep their spatial structures like the uh, sawtooth roofs and then also work with the character of brick and steel frame windows and that kind of stuff. So we found this property. It took us two years to find it about a year to do some plans and, and then get it through council, about a year and a half probably, and then we tended it and we built it. And what we tried to do was to, to move that idea of working into an industrial area to being more than the aesthetics. And what I recognise with industrial buildings is they're often built in a time when labour was cheap and materials are ex were expensive. So they're very fine. For example, they're still steel trusses on this building are fine they're very they're three millimeters thick steel and they're beautifully put together like there's always three screws and they're always equally spaced and the welds are gorgeous and it's very refined and we took that idea to the new building we said that's not i mean that the times aren't where labor is cheap but let's say we invest in labor and we're very spare with the materials we use how do we get them to work hard how do we get them to to, to do a lot with very little in that instance. And we rebuilt the front seven metres that faces the street as it had been sort of buggered up over the years. And then we kept the rear of the property, which was a beautiful sawtooth roof. So in our studio, which is about 400 square metres of one room, we have um, five big desks for five teams, huge pin-up boards, models lying around everywhere. And then that's supported by a space behind each wall which is a workshop to make models 
uh, materials library where we store our materials, a canteen and breakout area and reception at the front. And then upstairs we have a, a small apartment on the top floor which is made out of a brick vaulted roof where they're all structural. So again, that idea of um, using everyday materials uh, in a new way, being very spare with the material, these are structural vaults, so they, they are self-supporting. Um, I was trying to think about what your work reminds me of um, because it is very distinctive. It's quite unusual. You have this real magic with bricks. Uh, you create a very, um, well, it's very voluptuous. I mean, I was trying to think of something that reminds me of your work, and I don't want to embarrass you, but I was thinking of the sculptor Brancusi mm. as, as almost taking that idea and creating architecture from very simple forms but making mm. it very fluid. Mm. And it is something that I see in a number of your buildings, and it must take... It must take, I mean, not just talent, but it must take uh, enormous energy getting the right people who will actually create the concept in your head. Yeah, look, it's a, it is a remarkable thing, actually, isn't it, in building? I mean, I think we often point to the failures in building, like what went wrong or how did things not go well. That's one way to look at it, but it's also kind of extraordinary, isn't it, that you have... On a project like this, we would have had not hundreds, but probably over a thousand different people helping with the project at some point in time. So the job we have is to bring those thousand people together along with the builders and create something great together. So in that process, we try to engage with the people, for example, that are laying the bricks by bringing them to the table, having a coffee with them, talking about the aspiration of the project, telling them what we had thought of and explaining that we actually really don't know what we're doing, so we're here to learn. And then you'll find that they not only offer up their advice because people are always very happy to share their advice with you, um, but they also kind of they get into the project and make it better. And the bricks on this project, for example, were laid by two bricklayers that just loved it and engaged with it and would come to work in the mornings with calculations of brick coursing that they might have adjusted by 0.1 of a millimetre or something like that, and they just wanted to get it right. And we did all sorts of things. So on the outside of the building, there's brickwork that faces down by about 40 degrees, so it should fall down to the ground, but it doesn't. Um, inside, we don't use mortar to glue the bricks together. We use a glue so there's no tolerance, so the, so the bricks are very close and you don't see the mortar joints. Lots of little fine details that needed someone who wanted to be on board with that to make all that work. But it is, it is kind of a part of the process is to, to deliver on promise. So it's not enough for us to do an amazing CGI, which tells you what the possibility of the project will be. It's, for us, it's got to be better than the CGI by the time you're finished, and that means trying to create jobs where you're not photoshopping everything, you're kind of, yeah. the, the real is there. You can, you can see it when you walk around the space. There are no daggy little corners where you've run out of steam. <laughs> um, William, a couple of major projects have really kind of put you on the map. 
and tell me if I'm wrong, but I'd have to say the White Rabbit Gallery in Chippendale is one of my favourite galleries, but I always visit the, when I go there. That was a, an important project by uh, the patron Judith Neeson. Um, and then you did Indigo Slam, which was another major project, a house for her. Would you say they were kind of turning points in your career or? Totally. Yeah, totally. Like uh, more, more than White Rabbit was kind of important for us, but it wasn't. I mean, it's kind of seen in my mind as a great place. I don't think it's an extraordinary piece of architecture. There's parts of it that are good, and I think it's I think it's a very good piece of architecture. Um, so Indigo Slam was probably the first time anybody had ever said to me, "Okay, go and go and make me the best house in the country, please." That's what I need. Was that the brave? Yeah. I mean, it started off the first time it was. Judith turned up with a handwritten bit of paper and said, these are the things the house needs to do. It must have, you know, a dining table for 60. The floors have to be brick. I don't want any curtains and it must be beautiful. And she was also saying, hurry up and get moving because if you don't sort it out, I might just get Frank Gehry or someone like that to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yes. Um, and then uh, she said after the first meeting, look, we should make it the best house in Sydney, right? Let's go for that. And then the next meeting she said, I've changed my mind. I think it's got to be the best house in, in Australia. And then the third meeting, she said, let's make it the best house in the world. So she kept upping um, the kind of the ambition for the project. And we just, I knew that this was an opportunity that you shouldn't squander. It's, it's the one that, you know, it's the brief that comes along once in a lifetime. Someone it is says, once in a lifetime. Yeah, go and build me something amazing. And so we wanted to have layers to that project so it's sculptural from the outside and engages with the city like a piece of sculpture um, from inside it's very carved and and spatial and delicate in many ways i wanted to be a beautiful marriage between the owner and the house so that they fit together like hand in glove and then it's also very technical so some of the structure is extraordinary the way it holds itself up it's very, very sustainable. It's very low maintenance. They're all modest materials throughout, like um, uh, brick floors. And then we're able to be quite inventive. So we custom made all of these me, winding mechanisms to open and close the windows. So you can, uh, all the windows are linked together and you can wind a handle and they'll open up in, in series. But we've made all those out of casting brass and there was a lot of handmade pieces on the project. So it was a labour of love and I just, I loved every minute of working on that job, including building it, it. Is it when you're given that open brief and it is to someone, a client like that, and as you said, it's a once in an opportunity, a lifetime opportunity, do you kind of sweat on it? Like, do you just get so anxious about it? Because, you know, imagine if you present the plans to and she goes, it's not really what I was looking for. I mean, yeah. how, you know, like you must. Not, not on that. No, I was. I mean, I You're confident. Of, yeah. And I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do very early. Um, so I began the process by giving her three books to look at together and, over coffee. And one of them was these kind of, there's a beautiful house by John Pawson in it, which is kind of yeah. minimal and very clean. Another one was this um, Christian Liagri project where it was very classic and elegant and then the third one was this um, art gallery designed by Alvera Caesar. And I just said to her, without explaining any of this, which of these do you respond to? And she just 
went straight to the Caesar project. And so that's what I see. Something Cedar. Like that. Caesar, Alvero Caesar. Oh, so kind of very uh, sculptural, quite brutal. Um, you know, it was a kind of extraordinary piece of architecture. And, and then she told me the name was going to be Indigo Slam. And I just thought, I think I know what to do now. And I went away and did some work. And we kind of messed around with some things at the start. She liked the direction. The floor plan the first time around was all wrong. And the second time we worked it out. And then after that, I think I was always worried that someone would take it away, you know, like something would happen where... <laughs> Frank Gehry. Yeah, or the job the job would go on hold or it really wouldn't happen. So I do sort of also worry, you know, about those because sometimes you can work on an amazing project and after six months it goes on hold or, yeah. or someone doesn't go ahead with it. That can be very sad. But it didn't. It all went forward and came through and and there was, you know, incredible trust and, you know, a great relationship where we could just call each other and say, this is what I'm thinking. And there was just no, um, it wasn't sort of just a job. It was, you know, a real passion of mine for that, those three years. It took three years to, to design and draw all of the components and three years to build it as well. It's a long process. It's a long process, yeah. And it won major awards, I think. Yeah. It took out all the major awards at the time. Yeah, it won a lot of awards, including international awards, and it was just kind of, you know, it was almost unfair competition in a way because the brief was that good. It was just, you know, you, if, you, if you kind of uh, run with it, then, yeah. you know, uh, the brief was half of the half of the award, wasn't it? Like no one gets that brief to do, you know, make well, me something amazing, please. Um, you know, I would say if you hadn't uh, been very consistent and hadn't, but at this stage of your career, and you're still very uh, relatively young anyway, uh, surely you must think those type of briefs are going to eventuate still, yeah. that Judith won't be the only major project that you'll be doing of that. Yeah, no, I'm doing, I'm doing a, um, a kind of extraordinary house at the moment, which is about halfway through documentation, and it's just, um, it's just, there again in, a, in the country on an amazing site and that's kind of extraordinary. So, yes, they come along again and... and um, you don't every, have to be so every, anxious. Every client is different, but, uh, you know, as we get a little bit older, I think they come along knowing that... I mean, the client, I said to the client, do you want to talk about budget for a while? And he says, well, it's not going to be cheap, is it really? <laughs> <laughs> Getting on to budget... Um, William, mm. is it is there a problem when you reach a certain level and you're producing such extraordinary work that people who don't have the means or who have more modest budgets are actually a bit uh, hesitant to actually even contact you? And does that concern you? Because, you know, I've seen your smaller projects and they're quite exquisite. And is it a problem now that you've kind of become this this architect, you know, of yeah. There's, I mean, budgets, it's always on the table as a discussion and we try to make it a very open discussion, so try not to make it this mysterious thing that we find out how much it's going to cost at the end of the tender stage. But what we, what we do recognise is some of, the, some of the budget is probably attributed to being quite obsessive about the detail. So when you're building with us, the builder doesn't get a free run every week, you know, and then we turn up at the end of the week and say, here's how you're going. We're, we're working together as a team. And that takes time, you know, collaborating takes a bit of work. So some of the budget gets consumed by that. And then there's also parts of it that I've learned across the years, what works and what doesn't work. So some things I just won't do anymore. 
even if it's cheaper. If we're near the coast, I won't do a metal roof because it's just going to rust out. It's got to be concrete. We've got to waterproof it really well. And, you know, and that all adds you, a little bit of cost. But you're still open to looking at smaller projects. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, for us, the, the, the opportunity is linked to um, is there an opportunity to do are the architecture and the interiors as one because we don't ever see those two elements as being separate. Um, do we think we can be creative in the project? Is there, an, is there a door open to be creative? And sometimes that will knock it out. And is the budget realistic enough to, to be able to deliver? But we are we're doing um, several projects that are not huge budgets, and the budget is a very live conversation in the process that we're engaging with every week. And then, you know, with the client, we'll kind of explain that the budget will reflect the quality of the materials the amount of work to do so a bigger house costs more than a smaller house and then the complexity of the project as well. They're all the variables that we need to bring into the mix and try to get the, the optimum outcome for our clients. Um, well, you might also notice uh, on my partner's Instagram, I did see your um, wonderful gallery museum for Finland, which was just a ripper. <laughs> and I'm hoping that will eventuate for you. How difficult is it to achieve those really international projects. Yeah, well, we didn't win that one, I'm afraid. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, but I'm, I'm quite proud of it. And, we, and I think we just decided every year to do one international competition now and we'll just see where we go. We're, we're quite, um, you know, fascinated by public buildings and museums and art galleries, so we try to focus them in that area and learn as we go. On that project, I felt like the winning project was very domestic in scale and we went for a very heroic gesture and I think that's probably just you know not knowing perhaps the nuances of what that town wanted yeah. we thought this could be a you know a landmark project that might attract tourism to the town and solved all the problems we could see. Well actually their library in Finland which I visited actually has a strong domestic feel mm. it's you know almost loungy you know, yeah. a series of lounge rooms, you feel like you're at home. Right. And that may have been something that unless you're actually living in Helsinki, yeah. you wouldn't pick up. Yeah. So that, they're the kinds of things I think you learn over the years is just to, to try and do it. But I, I feel like if I keep doing it and I keep asking myself what went wrong and what did I learn and, you know, how can I do this better next time, I, you just, we just slowly get a bit better at it. We'll start winning them at some point, I know. I know you will. I know you will. <laughs> um, At some point. Yeah. You will. Um, look, I just, look, I love seeing your work. I think you're really quite different from other architects I've come across. There is a very strong signature, so I can pick your work, but it's hard to, dis it's hard to define what makes something great and what makes something good. Uh, it's, and you don't know. It's very difficult to actually articulate that, subtle difference between something really quite memorable. I mean, you did a project uh, in Surrey Hills, uh, a, um, and a, two apartments above a, a shop. I mean, I just fell in love with that straight away. I thought that was just magical. And I think it was partly the context. It was clipped onto this terrace next door. It almost just felt so right. And right. I loved it. I mean, I just, I think that's when great architecture really punches above its weight when you deliver something unexpected, something that's really appropriate and something that you feel 
you just haven't seen before. Yeah, and, and I think, I, I think I with, with that project in particular, it's in Nixon Street in Surrey Hills. It's the last terrace in a row, and it's just up from Cleveland Street, which is a, a busy, noisy, you know, kind of arterial road running through the back of Surrey Hills. Um, so it's, it's got a context where we needed to respond with something that was very strong and felt secure and it's on the south side and didn't need to open up for light and all those things. So that it actually was a pretty good opportunity. I quite like the tough sides because often you've got to think outside the box to come up with a really great solution. So I was really preoccupied with how can I bring light in and create privacy and give these residents a feeling of security and give them a view of something very beautiful like the sky rather than necessarily looking at a dirty road where the buses are all stacked up with the traffic. So, so that kind of created the solution. And then sometimes those projects are quite hard to unlock, but that facade was probably a couple of hours of work for each day for a month until it finally clicked. I just couldn't get it right. And then something clicked and I knew how to fold the two forms together and think, yes, I've done it now. Good, I can go, go and move on and work out how to detail it. So sometimes the creative process doesn't actually quite take you there and sometimes you get that moment where you just think, ah. Oh, no, it's right. It's, it's right. right. I know it's what's really right. I've got it. I think I've it's, got this It's one. right. I think after 30 years of writing, I think I can say it's right with you. <laughs> awesome. Um, <laughs> Look, thank you so much for being on the program today. Um, Pleasure. You know, look, your work is extraordinary. Uh, I, I think I mentioned to you in an email, I've become a groupie. And I think the only problem is I kind of want to write about everything that you do. And I imagine everyone else wants to write about everything you do. And so we're all fighting over William Smart, <laughs> which isn't particularly dignified. But, you know, I think that's the power of great architecture. And yeah. I think when you see something so beautiful, you don't actually have to say anything. You just yeah. know you've walked into something quite magical. So, look, thanks so much for being on the program. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.